Hello again, and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino, and this is episode 401, Not Determinative. And in this episode, we're going to look at pretty much exclusively the bar memo that dropped over the weekend. So unless you were living underneath a rock, on Friday, the special counsel filed his report with the attorney general, William Barr. And over the weekend, William Barr prepared a four-page memo summarizing the special counsel's work. And I have basically a little crib sheet, a quick glance at what William Barr said. First, he said the report does not recommend any further indictments, nor did the special counsel obtain any sealed indictments that have yet to be made public. So this effectively puts to rest the sealed indictments narrative, unless you think that Mueller outsourced sealed indictments to places like the Eastern District of Virginia. That, I guess, could make what Attorney General Barr say be factually accurate, however, also have a scenario wherein there are still sealed indictments. However, that's a pretty low potentiality. So I I would say right now it's safe to assume that's probably not the case, although it is not impossible that that is the case. And I certainly think as we talk about the bar memo here, we shouldn't take anything on face value. I, I mean, one of the things I am hearing from the Russiagate skeptics today is this talking point of, was this our generation's weapons of mass destruction? And my response to that is basically no, because in this case, Robert Mueller ended up finding many weapons of mass destruction. There were 37 different indictments, indictments that involved illegal activities of members and associates in this campaign, that essentially Donald Trump's campaign were a bunch of near-to-wells and career criminals, and it made sense that they committed crimes along the way, and it certainly brings into question Donald Trump hiring, quote-unquote, the best people. Further, one of the things that this investigation revealed, which is kind of contrary to the weapons of mass destruction narrative, is that there was indeed a coordinated coordinated and multifaceted media and opinion influencing operation being done by the Russian government. Even Attorney General Barr, in his framing, which is glossy, I hope we can all agree to that, his opinion, his estimations of that influencing campaign are that it came in many forms. It came in the form of the Internet Research Agency, but it also came in a multi-pronged hack like fish into the DNC and members of the Clinton campaign, capture that information, and then reroute that information through media intermediaries like WikiLeaks. So one of the things that this investigation showed is that WikiLeaks was, in fact, one of the weapons of mass destruction. Now, I think the argument there, or sort of the word is right, is that how much effect on the general election results, particularly the Electoral College, did something like the hack of the DNC and the release of DNC emails that were embarrassing and damaging to the Clinton campaign have on the general election? 
I'm not sure. Certainly, it helped people who were sympathetic to Sanders in their narrative that the Clinton campaign was out to fuck them over using the DNC. It helped because it was true. So, I mean, one of the big things to remember for the Democrats is that the reason you had this problem, the reason the Russians were able to hack into your emails and get damaging stuff is because you were doing things that were going to be damaging to you if they ever got revealed. And then to go back to the WMD narrative, I think the instructive lesson there was to not take the government's official line on things at face value. Take it with some degree of credence, but like with the WMDs, rather than just trusting the Bush administration, what you would want to do there is trust the UN inspectors. So let's get back into the bar memo. But as we're considering the bar memo, I think it's really important to remember that this whole putting out the bar memo runs contra to the spirit, if not the letter, of the special counsel statute. Because technically in the letter of the statute, it says that the attorney general is just supposed to provide Congress with the findings, but really the intention when we came up with these statutes as a government in the post-Watergate era was to provide this independent oversight on the executive branch, because the executive branch can't do good oversight on itself. So if you just let the attorney general do that oversight, you end up into a conflicted zone. This is why you would want an independent counsel. And this is part of the problem with the special counsel statute. So I hope one of the important takeaways here, which will probably get lost in the shovel, but I think is an important takeaway, is that really what we need is a much stronger special counsel statute. That is one of the failings that is going on here. And one of the things that attorney general Barr is taking advantage of. So we get into his memo. His memo is broken into two parts. First, it talks about collusion, and then it talks about obstruction. On the collusion side, Attorney General Barr says that there are two main prongs to this. First, we have the Internet Research Agency and their social media operations, also their troll farm. And then we get to Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, which is the other part of this investigation. And if you go back and look at old episodes of Don't Worry About the government. I had a guest on and we had a rather spirited debate about Paul Manafort and who was behind the DNC leaks. And this guest believed that the narrative that WikiLeaks was advancing, WikiLeaks, who has now been demonstrated by the special counsel's investigation to be working in concert with the Russian government's hacking of the DNC servers, this person advanced the narrative that WikiLeaks was advancing, that this leak was in fact not a hack but a leak, and it was done by a murdered staffer named Seth Rich. That has been disproven. That has been disproven sort of indisputably here. Even Attorney General Barr's memo says, no, the people behind the leak are the Russians, and WikiLeaks is a part of that operation of dissemination, although Attorney General Barr is kind of fuzzy. I mean, as you might expect with a four-page memo here and collusion summed up into two prongs and two paragraphs, one paragraph for each, he's a bit fuzzy about the interplay of all of these things. But one thing that he does say in the memo, and this is a quote from the memo, 
The special counsel did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in these efforts. Despite multiple offers from Russian-affiliated individuals to assist the Trump campaign. So even in the most sanitized version of events here, again, there is a Russian operation that doesn't just involve the Internet Research Agency and obviously organizations like Russia Today and WikiLeaks, other media operations, Sputnik would be in there as well, but also individuals, Russian-affiliated individuals, to assist the Trump campaign. So they never actually had full coordination, but there is all of this reaching out from Russia. So again, to go back to the weapons of mass destruction narrative, not really sure how that maps onto that. To me, this actually seems like here are these attempted usage of weapons, and in the most generous version of events here, the Trump campaign was aware of these overtures. They would have had to have been because, again, going back to Barr's wording, multiple offers were made to the Trump campaign from Russian-affiliated individuals to assist the Trump campaign in their defeat of Hillary Clinton. So the Russians make these multiple offers to the Trump campaign to assist the Trump campaign and also just inform them that there is an effort to help out the Trump campaign from the Russian government that is already extant. And the Trump campaign hears some of these offers and decides not to go to the FBI or any member of the United States law enforcement authorities or intelligence agencies and instead decides to keep it to themselves. That's damning in and of itself. So on the obstruction side, Barr has said many things before he got this job, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, but here's his argument on the obstruction piece. The special counsel decided to describe the facts in the obstruction investigation without reaching a legal conclusion. Rosenstein and I have concluded that the evidence developed during the special counsel investigation is not enough to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. Our determination was made without regard to constitutional considerations that surround indictment and prosecution of a sitting president. So with that last sentence there, Barr is trying to argue this has nothing to do with prior Office of Legal Counsel memos that say that you can't even indict a sitting president. But I want to talk about other issues involving Rosenstein and William Barr here in just a moment. Second, though... The special counsel recognized, quote, the evidence does not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to election interference. Again, that's the president was involved in an underlying crime related to election interference. That doesn't really establish the rest of the campaign. That's exceedingly narrow and also does not cover someone like Donald Trump Jr., And that, while not determinative, the absence of such evidence bears on the president's intent. So, here Barr is arguing that if the Internet Research Agency troll farm and the Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear, WikiLeaks release of Hillary Clinton emails timeline does not track onto crimes and offenses done by the Trump campaign that relate to either the Internet Research Agency or the thread that involves 
Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear hacking the DNC emails and then disseminating them through WikiLeaks. And as we know, Roger Stone was not directly related to the campaign, so even by that kind of narrow threshold, Trump could skate by on the obstruction side, according to Barr's very limited and very tight definition of obstruction of justice. The last part of Barr's memo argues that the special counsel recognized, quote, the evidence does not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to election interference, and that, while not determinative, the absence of such evidence bears upon the president's intent. That's what's going on with the collusion side and the obstruction side. And at this point of the show, one thing I want to do is I want to point you to the Patreon side of our show, not because this show is listener-supported, although it is, and that means that your buck a show, which is all we're asking, helps keep the light on with server space. There's also another way to support this show, and that's by going to don'tworry.tv, and if you click on any episodes link, you'll see a PayPal donation link. Some of you have used that in the past, and actually rather recently too, and I just want to remind everyone, it looks like it's It's recurring because when I set it up, the intention was for it to be recurring and to be an alternative course to set up recurring donations outside of Patreon and also would give a monthly function. However, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Not unfortunately for you because for you, and this is important to note, I just want everyone to remember this and and please get at me if this ever operates otherwise because this is my understanding too. It will only bill you one time. So it just goes and gives you some quick taps. So the other option is you can go to paypal.me slash paydwatg. I think that's the PayPal. And that's also a way to do a direct deposit. Those are the ways to support the show. But you're going to want to go to the Patreon this time. This is on the free side. This is for everyone. Because what I've done is I've put up my show notes and there are a bunch of citations. Everything from William Barr's memo, which I've been talking about here for about the last 20 minutes or so, all the way down to my thoughts and my opinions on this with a bunch of citations. I'm going to read through a bunch of it. I'll probably edit out here and there. So there's going to be a little bit more even on the notes side of things. I just think it's worth taking a look at. I I want everyone to see my work on this. I think it's important to show your work, especially on something like this. This is controversial. So with all of that said, again, patreon.com slash DWATG. Support the show today. A bucket show is all we're asking. All right, music. That's enough of that. You can go away for now. Don't get louder. I'm sorry. You can go away for now, please. Thank you. All right, so let's start with Barr's arguments on obstruction. Trump is directly implicated in a crime. The hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal done through AMI and Michael Cohen, AMI being the owning company of the National Enquirer. That's David Pecker. So he had at least one thing that he didn't want to come out during the course of this investigation. That is not considered at all in William Barr's under 48-hour rumination on the obstruction piece. And it couldn't be given his limited purview of collusion, which is all Barr was considering when he was making his obstruction considerations. Clearly, Barr should have been making some sort of decision on individual one's role in the Daniels and McDougal payments because that was spun off from Robert Mueller's investigation. 
But what William Barr is doing here is saying, no, 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 I don't have to consider that because that was spun off from Robert Mueller's investigation. But remember, Michael Cohen, he is not the one who had the affair here with Daniels. So the whole reason that Michael Cohen made these payments on behalf of Individual One, that was because Individual One instructed Michael Cohen to do it because it was in the interest of Individual One. Further, Michael Cohen told lies on behalf of Individual One. Individual One is what those indictments called Donald Trump. And those lies were only in service of individual one. Michael Cohen had nothing to gain from that. So they were at the instruction of individual one on the behalf of individual one. Because that prosecution was spun off from the Mueller probe, Barr doesn't consider that in this obstruction review. And so while some of those things don't even necessarily fall neatly underneath the obstruction statute, it's certainly a thing to consider that Donald Trump would want this to be hidden. And that is certainly a thing that William Barr seems to think is important in your obstruction of justice statute consideration. This is a crime. Trump doesn't want it coming out. It would potentially come out during this investigation. It would be damaging to Donald Trump. It would be damaging to Donald Trump's marriage. If it was damaging to Donald Trump's marriage, then it would be damaging to his bottom line because potentially Melania could divorce Donald Trump and take some portion of his assets. He has a reason to prevent this from coming out. That's not considered by William Barr. Only the two collusion prongs are considered by William Barr. Next, we need to talk about Rod Rosenstein and William Barr and their conflicts of interest. And I think it's important to remember that they're both pretty conflicted when they're offering legal opinions on the case of obstruction, particularly on the Comey side, because Rod Rosenstein was involved in drafting the memo on the firing of James Comey. So if Rod Rosenstein rules that there was an obstruction of justice when the Comey memo was done and the Comey firing occurred, which was the auspices for a large part of this investigation being opened in the first place, in effect, Rod Rosenstein has to point the finger on some level at himself. Obviously, this is problematic, right? I I don't think we have to go too deep into this. But with William Barr, there's also an issue here because for really no reason whatsoever, William Barr, several months before getting this job as Attorney General, no reason whatsoever other than to get the job as Attorney General, he wrote a huge memo on the matter of obstruction of justice being done by the President, and he submitted this unsolicited advice to the Department of Justice several months months before he got the job as the Attorney General, which is the head of the Department of Justice. So he has expressed in a very, very loud way, in so many words, I have a very strong prior opinion on this matter. And he's accused Mueller, and this is from the memo, of, quote, proposing an unprecedented expansion of obstruction laws so as to reach facially lawful actions taken by the president in exercising the discretion vested in him by the Constitution. In so many words, Mueller's trying to overinterpret obstruction of justice so as to make the James Comey firing something that would meet the purview of obstruction of justice, which is to say he has already rendered an opinion on how he feels about 
James Comey's firing for that Russia thing being part of an obstruction of justice case. William Barr has said unequivocally he's against it. Rod Rosenstein, if he's going to implicate someone on the obstruction of justice side of the James Comey firing, has to basically implicate himself. Both of these guys have massive conflicts of interest. Barr actually went a little bit further in that memo. After saying Mueller's supposed interpretation of obstruction is wrong, Barr added, quote, If a DOJ investigation is going to take down a democratically elected president, it is imperative to the health of our system and to our national cohesion that any claim of wrongdoing is solidly based on evidence of a real crime, not a debatable one. So in this memo, again, he seems to be pointing a finger specifically at the Comey firing and saying, even if you wanted me to consider the Comey firing, it would be something that is debatable because firing the FBI director is something that the president can do lawfully so long as their intentions are not unlawful. And that would be a matter of debate. You'd have to know the president's state of mind. And it's really important to note as we're talking about this Mueller report and the investigation so far, Donald Trump never sat down and answered questions with Mueller or Mueller's team. And that probably would have been very instructive, especially on the obstruction piece. One last thing I want to highlight about the interplay of Trump and Rod Rosenstein in the firing of James Comey. It's from this interview with Lester Holt from May 11th of 2017. Holt says, Monday, you met with the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, right? Trump says, right. And there's a little bit of space here, but a little bit further down after the, you know we kind of spin around for a bit. Trump says, they... He made a recommendation. He's highly respected. Very good guy. Very smart guy. And the Democrats like him. The Republicans like him. He had made a recommendation. But regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey knowing that there was no good time to do it. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. Hold your breath because this is my favorite part of the argument. And the reason that they should have won is that the Electoral College is almost impossible for a Republican to win. It's very hard because you start off at such a disadvantage. So, again, ask yourself if that passes your smell test. Does that make sense? Throw the Electoral College thing to the side. It's obviously fucking wrong. I I, I added that in for shits and giggles because we just talked about it two episodes ago. But it makes no sense, right? It's a bunch of gobbledygook. And there is something to this Russia thing with Trump in Russia. He was saying things like he had no business dealings in Russia. I notice anytime anything wrong happens, they like to say the Russians, the Russians, she doesn't know if it's the Russians doing the hacking. Maybe there is no hacking. But they always blame Russia. And the reason they blame Russia is because they think they're trying to tarnish me with Russia. I know nothing about Russia. I know, I know about Russia, but I know nothing about the inner workings of Russia. I don't deal there. I have no businesses. There. I have no loans from Russia. I have a very, very great balance sheet, so great that when I did the old post office on Pennsylvania Avenue, the United States government, because of my balance sheet, which they actually know very well, chose me to do the old post office. One of the primary things, in fact, perhaps the primary thing, was balance sheet. But I have no loans with Russia. You could go to the United States government and they would probably tell you that because they know my sheet very well in order to get that development. Except we know that to not be true. We know that there are 
five iterations of a Trump Tower Moscow project that go back all the way to 2012 and before, but we're continuing all the way up to and including the 2016 presidential campaign. This was something that Michael Cohen was involved in, and he just testified before Congress to in recent weeks. This is an important real thing that we know. So when Trump says there's nothing to the Trump and Russia thing, that's not true. And he almost certainly knows that that's not true because he's got Michael Cohen working on it and Felix Sater, who is set to testify later on this week. You probably don't have to think too hard as to why Donald Trump wouldn't want it becoming widely known in the public that he had been trying to build a Trump Tower Moscow five different times and that this final version was going to be effectively the largest building in Europe and that he was working with the government and using his intermediary, Michael Cohen, to go and set up all the details of the Trump Tower Moscow project. And that although it fell apart, again, this is the fifth attempt. This is clearly a thing that Donald Trump has wanted to do and theoretically would have probably finished had this come to pass. Actually, more likely, it would have fallen apart yet again. But it was still a thing he was trying to do and he was using the presidential campaign as leverage to get this deal done because it was increasing his stock in the public image. It was increasing his brand's value, which as he has said is actually connected to his name and its recognition inside of the news. So Trump wanted to license his name for this Trump Tower in Moscow. He was doing it during the campaign. He was saying things like, I have no business dealings in Russia. And as Michael Cohen testified, I lied to Congress when Mr. Trump stopped negotiating the Moscow Tower project in Russia. I stated that we stopped negotiating in January of 2016. That was false. Our negotiations continued for months later during the campaign. Mr. Trump did not directly tell me to lie to Congress. That's not how he operates. In conversations we had during the campaign, at the same time I was actively negotiating in Russia for him, he would look me in the eye and tell me there's no Russian business and then go on to lie to the American people by saying the same thing. In his way, he was telling me to lie. There were at least a half a dozen times between the Iowa caucus in January of 2016 and the end of June when he would ask me, how's it going in Russia? Referring to the Moscow Tower project. You need to know that Mr. Trump's personal lawyers reviewed and edited my statement to Congress about the timing of the Moscow Tower negotiations before I gave it. So to be clear, Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump-Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. He lied about it because he never expected to win. He also lied about it because he stood to make hundreds of millions of dollars on the Moscow real estate project. And so I lied about it too. Because Mr. Trump had made clear to me, through his personal statements to me, that we both knew to be false, and through his lies to the country, that he wanted me to lie. 
This is obviously a damaging thing that Donald Trump doesn't want getting revealed, but Rosenstein has not considered the Trump Tower piece of this when he's making his obstruction considerations. And again, I think it's that very narrow collusion obstruction lens that allows William Barr to avoid looking at things like this that Marcy Wheeler has identified as pretty obvious attempts to obstruct the justice process. So to read a little from Marcy here, Barr, who at the time had no understanding of the evidence, made three comments in his confirmation hearings about obstruction. Among others, he said point-blank that a person could not lawfully issue a pardon in exchange for someone's promise to not incriminate him. Quote, Do you believe a president could lawfully issue a pardon in exchange for the recipient's promise to not incriminate him? Senator Patrick Leahy asked Barr during his confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Barr said, no, that would be a crime. What we know now is that Trump has repeatedly floated pardons to witnesses who have, in the hopes of obtaining a pardon, not incriminated him. And that's the most true of Paul Manafort. Remember, Paul Manafort had a plea agreement, and then he backed out of the plea agreement, and apparently he did that specifically to not incriminate Donald Trump. So, to rewind a little bit further here, on the basis of what he said to get this job, Barr is already on the record saying that Trump obstructed justice on just this narrow piece, but again, he's interpreting obstruction of justice through the very narrow lens of the timeline of during the election campaign and the window right after the Comey firing. Later on in that same post, Marcy brings up a few things that the Barr letter does not absolve Trump of. First is conspiring with WikiLeaks. Second is conspiring with the Russians, who are not members of the government on the hack and leak part. And third, and it looks like the investigation didn't touch this at all, which is insane to me, a quid pro quo trading help for policy considerations. Specifically, when we talk about those policy considerations, to move away from Marcy's post now, specifically around the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act continues to be a sticking point for this administration, as does the implementation of sanctions on the Russians. This was the big thing, according to reporting, that the Russians were looking to get. And when they were talking to Manafort, Kushner, and Don Jr. in the Trump Tower in New York City with Donald Trump Jr. a floor below, they were ostensibly talking about, according to Don Jr. and the rest of them, Russian adoptions. But we know that the Trump side of that meeting thought they were going in to get information damaging to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And we know that the Russian side of that meeting was going in to get relief from the Magnitsky sanctions, which have been placed on Russian oligarchs that Vladimir Putin considers to be very important to his regime. Actually, there's a WikiLeaks cable from many a moon ago, and that that is a very precise measurement, but you can look this up. There's a WikiLeaks cable that talks about Oleg Deripaska, who is a key player when we talk about Manafort, but talks about Oleg Deripaska as one of Putin's two or three closest guys. And Deripaska is one of the people specifically sanctioned in the Magnitsky Act, 
And moreover, Oleg Deripaska's company is actually a source of debate on a congressional level and between Congress and the president over the last two years here. And it was certainly something that was on the mind of the Russian government as the American government was moving into their elections in 2016. They wanted to figure out who was going to be the best person to get a transaction on that. Would it be Hillary Clinton, who has had an adversarial relationship with Russia, or would it be this guy, Donald Trump, who keeps trying to build a Trump Tower over here and did the Miss America pageant over here in Russia, and before he came over here in 2013, was tweeting out things like, Wow, I wonder if Vladimir Putin will become my best friend during this meeting in 2013. And I don't know if they did or not. But if you're Vladimir Putin, I mean, is it in any contest? Yeah, of course you get Trump elected. And then maybe after the fact, you go in and say, Hey, you idiot, I helped get you elected. And oh, by the way, I have compromising information on you from the campaign and also our years of business dealings. So you might want to play ball with me. As though the collusion happened after the campaign, which would make a lot more sense when you were sitting there and flummoxed looking at that meeting in Helsinki where Trump sure seems to have a subservient posture and disposition to Vladimir Putin that seems to go above and beyond flattery in the service to get a thing. What thing is he trying to get? Has he ever actually articulated that? Or is the thing he's trying to get relief from the debts? that he now owes Vladimir Putin, or relief from the compromising material, whatever it is. Not the fucking P-tape. There is no P-tape. But whatever this compromising material is, and it could be something as simple as this meeting in Trump Tower in 2016, or his business dealings. Trump acts a lot more, to my eyes, like a guy who is worried about this other dude who's got something on him, rather than a dude who is on a mission to do something Reagan-esque with the Russians, like denuke the world. Wouldn't that be sweet? And it would have been, except that, you know, China had already tested nuclear weapons and there were a whole bunch of problems with that plan, but we'll leave that conversation for another day. All right, so this episode's getting a little bit content dense, and we still got the whole collusion side to get through. So real quickly, I'm going to throw in a musical break here. I just wrote this piece recently for who I hope will eventually become one of my clients. They wanted to hear what my work would look like on a pop side. So this is a piece that I prepared for them on that front. I hope you enjoy it, and if you don't like it, please don't tell me that I sold out, because I haven't sold out. I'm still keeping it real. I'm still punk rock, but this isn't.
The special counsel found that the Russian government actors successfully hacked into the computers and obtained emails from persons affiliated with the Clinton campaign and the Democratic Party organizations and publicly disseminated those materials through various intermediaries, including WikiLeaks. And it left me with some questions after rereading that about the Stone indictment. So, yeah, Stone is only charged with lying to Congress and witness tampering. But this is from Mueller's indictment of Roger Stone. After the July 22, 2016 release of the stolen DNC emails by Organization One, a senior campaign official was directed to contact Stone about any additional releases and what other damaging information Organization One had regarding the Clinton campaign. Stone thereafter told the Trump campaign about future releases of damaging material by Organization One. This statement in that indictment, though it does not charge collusion, sure looks like collusion by any standard definition of the word. Barr is tiptoeing around this argument that if Stone, who was once part of the Trump 2016 campaign during the Republican primaries, but later morphed into an informal advisor to the campaign, if Roger Stone, this longtime friend and business associate of Paul Manafort, who advised Donald Trump through multiple presidential flirtations, if Roger Stone worked or conspired or even sought to work with WikiLeaks, which it certainly looks like he did, that is, to use Trump's preferred word, at minimum, seeking to do the collusion. And, at worst, it's actively colluding, and it involved senior members of the campaign. So, at minimum, what we have here from a Mueller indictment, the indictment of Roger Stone, which was filed on January 25th of this year, it says that a senior campaign official was directed to contact Stone to see if there was any more information involving WikiLeaks. Obviously, Donald Trump would not have wanted that to become public. How did Barr consider that? Why did Barr consider that? And how could Barr have looked at that and not thought, well, that would be a thing that Donald Trump wouldn't want coming out during the course of this investigation that definitely came out during the course of this investigation. That strikes me as far-fetched, and I think the only way that Barr can get there is by taking advantage of that clause that we were talking about earlier through various intermediaries like WikiLeaks. Including WikiLeaks in that group of intermediaries moves WikiLeaks out of the Russian government by Barr's own definition, and as such, wouldn't fit the mold of collusion. There's a lot of tiptoeing and sidestepping and weaving that Barr is doing to make this memo factually accurate, but what he is leaving out or how he is wording these things is where he is revealing himself. Barr's memo doesn't touch 
on the June 9th, 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Kushner, Manafort, and Don Jr. We've talked about that before, and you can just go and look at the Wikipedia article on that. A lot of that is actually included in the reader that I have on patreon.com slash DWATG. The next article in there is Veselnitskaya, Russian and Trump Tower meeting, is charged in a case that shows Kremlin ties. So this is important because what this shows us is that when Don Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner are sitting in the room with Natalia Veselnitskaya, that woman is a person who is known to have ties to the Russian government, and it wasn't even found during the course of this investigation. It was actually found in completely separate investigations. Uh, you can read all the citations on this. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in going back and reviewing that set of notes was this little line in here about, in her memo on talking points for the meeting, it closely matched a memo that Mr. Shaika's office had prepared for an American member of Congress, including incorporating some passages verbatim. Veselnitskaya was given this memo about adoptions before she went to the meeting, but I think it's particularly interesting that this was prepared for a member of Congress and only seems to further bolster the claim that the reason Veselnitskaya was meeting with those Trump boys in Trump Tower was to some political end. It was to accomplish something, and they were at some stage of accomplishing that political thing, but they were clearly doing that, and we know that because they were also working with members of Congress. Who is this member of Congress? Very interesting. I still would like to know more about that. Another thing that William Barr does not seem to conclude in either the collusion side nor the obstruction side is Paul Manafort and Rick Gates's sustaining relationships with Oleg Deripaska and Konstantin Kalimnik that continued while Paul Manafort was the campaign manager and Rick Gates was serving as the deputy campaign chair or some other weird leadership title. They were actively talking with Oleg Deripaska and Konstantin Kalimnik. Now Manafort has had a relationship with this Oleg Deripaska that goes back way further. So initially, this is actually from AP here, this is called Inside Paul Manafort's Secret Plan to, quote, greatly benefit the Putin government. And this is from March 22nd of 2017. President Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, secretly worked for a Russian billionaire to advance the interests of Russian President Vladimir Putin a decade ago and proposed an ambitious political strategy to undermine anti-Russian opposition across former Soviet republics, the Associated Press has learned. The work appears to contradict assertions by the Trump administration and Manafort himself that he never worked for Russian interests. To read a little bit more from that article, Manafort proposed in a confidential strategy plan as early as June 2005 that he would influence politics, business dealings, and news coverage inside the U.S., Europe, and even former Soviet republics to benefit the Putin government, even as U.S.-Russia relations under George W. Bush grew worse. Manafort pitched the plans to the aluminum magnate Oleg Deripaska, a close Putin ally for whom Manafort eventually signed a $10 million annual contract beginning in 2006, according to interviews with several people familiar with payments to Manafort and business records obtained by the AP. Manafort and Deripaska maintained a business relationship until at least 2009, according to one person familiar with the work. 
Quote, we are now of the belief that this model can greatly benefit the Putin government if employed at the correct levels with the appropriate commitment to success, Manafort wrote in the 2005 memo to Deripaska. The effort, Manafort wrote, will be offering a great service that can refocus both internally and externally the policies of the Putin government. Manafort's plans were laid out in documents obtained by the AP that included strategy memoranda and records showing international wire transfers for millions of dollars. Okay, yeah, sure, Chris. That establishes that Paul Manafort and Oleg Deripaska had a long-standing relationship that stretches back over a decade. That looks pretty bad. It's about 15 years now of that relationship. That doesn't look great for him, but that doesn't show anything involving the 2016 campaign when he was the campaign manager. This is from the Washington Post, and this was published in September of 2017. Less than two weeks before Donald Trump accepted the Republican presidential nomination, his campaign chairman offered to provide briefings on the race to a Russian billionaire closely aligned with the Kremlin, according to people familiar with the discussions. Paul Manafort made the offer in an email to an overseas intermediary asking that a message be sent to Oleg Deripaska, an aluminum magnate with whom Manafort had done business in the past, these people said. Quote, if he needs private briefings, we can accommodate, Manafort wrote on July 7th of 2016. It's worth noting that at this stage of the reporting, and it's in the article and I included in the show notes, there is no evidence in the document showing that Deripaska received Manafort's offer or that any briefings took place. So we would agree that if any briefings took place, that would look pretty bad, right? It would look like this plot was actually advanced and that Manafort was part of it. I think you know where I'm going by the tone of my voice here. So to read a little bit more from this copy... A spokeswoman for Deripaska dismissed these email exchanges as scheming by consultants in the notorious Beltway bandit industry. So the most flattering version of events is that Paul Manafort is a swamp creature and one of his swamp masters is Oleg Deripaska, who is a Russian oligarch directly connected to Vladimir Putin. Look, if you want to go with that narrative, that's cool. I I don't know that that's total exoneration or anything like that. It's certainly a version of events that is not ruled out at this point. So if, if you said that to me, I wouldn't laugh you out of the park. But I think that this actually gets a little bit worse. And in fact, I know it gets a little bit worse because I wrote this episode. So the notes appear to be written in deliberately vague terms, with Manafort and his longtime employee, Konstantin Kalimnik, never explicitly mentioning Deripaska by name in writing like Deripaska, but Deripaska is referenced in many places as OVD. So when Paul Manafort is using the term OVD and Kalimnik is responding with references to OVD, it's almost certain that it's Oleg V, whatever the V stands for, Deripaska. One email uses a term called black caviar, which is a Russian delicacy, but investigators believe that that's a veiled reference to payments that Manafort had hoped to receive from former clients. One of those former clients was actually Oleg Deripaska, but in this case, he actually owes Oleg Deripaska a ton of money at this point. To read a little bit more from that article, Manafort and Deripaska have both confirmed that they had a business relationship in which Manafort was paid as an investment consultant. In 2014, 
Deripaska accused Manafort in a Cayman Islands court of taking nearly $19 million intended for investments and then failing to account for those funds, return them, or respond to the numerous inquiries about exactly how that money was used. And there are no signs in court documents that that case was ever closed or resolved in any way, which suggests that Paul Manafort still owed $19 million. And, oh, by the way, if he somehow had even laundered money to Ole Deripaska to the tune of $19 million, at some point investigators would have turned that up. And, and we know that investigators went through his financial records. They didn't turn this up. So that debt, because we know that they didn't turn that up, we know that debt still stands. And the emails turned over to investigators show that Manafort remained in regular contact with Konstantin Kalimnik, his longtime employee in Kiev, throughout his five-month tenure at the Trump campaign. And you know, Manafort really needed work, which is why it made it very eyebrow-raising that he agreed to work for Mr. Trump for free. It just didn't quite seem to add up. This reporting from last year, this is February 28th of 2018 from Bloomberg, Manafort joined Trump as Ukraine work slowed cash woes rose. Oh, that's a mouthful. So following Yanukovych's ouster, Manafort's cash flow began to stutter. In one project for the opposition bloc, they paid Manafort $1 million in October of 2014 for his consulting work prior to the Ukraine parliamentary election. His last lobbying assignment for the group ended in October of 2015, which is actually less than six months before he joined the Trump campaign. He had only received part of the money he was supposed to, and the group still owed him $2 million, according to an allegedly fraudulent document he submitted as part of an effort to secure a bank loan in 2016. So, some people owe him money, but he also owes Oleg Deripaska this extra money. According to this Bloomberg report, he owes $17 million to pro-Russian interests. That's actually from New York Times reporting. And then, in just the case of Deripaska alone, he owes him $20 million, and that's from the legal complaints that were filed in the Cayman Islands in 2014 that I just talked about. There's a little bit more in this article about the interplay between Manafort and Kalimnik, too. In late July, eight days after Trump delivered his GOP nomination acceptance speech in Cleveland, Kalimnik wrote Manafort with an update according to people familiar with the email exchange. Kalimnik wrote in the July 29th email that he had met that day with the person, quote, who gave you the biggest black caviar jar several years ago. According to people familiar with the exchange, Kalimnik said it would take some time to discuss the, quote, long caviar story, and the two of them agreed to meet in New York. This is from The Atlantic, October 2nd, 2017. By the end of April, Manafort was vying for control of the Trump campaign and was named its chairman on May 19th. On July 7th, two weeks before Trump accepted the Republican nomination, Manafort again wrote to Kalimnik, he forwarded questions he'd received from a reporter for the English-language Kiev Post about Black Sea Cable, the sole investment made by the venture. Manafort asked Kalimnik, is there any movement on this issue with our friend? Manafort seemed concerned about whether the journalist's probing had caught the attention of Deripaska. A source close to Manafort confirmed to me that, quote, our friend indeed referred to the Russian oligarch. 
Kalimnik did not respond to requests for comment. Referring to the journalist from the Kiev Post, quote, I would ignore him, Kalimnik wrote back, responding within minutes to reassure Manafort that it was just, quote, a junior reporter and nothing to worry about. In the back and forth that followed, Kalimnik suggested that Manafort's efforts to please Oleg Deripaska were succeeding. Quote, I am cautiously optimistic on the issue of our biggest interest, Kalimnik went on. Our friend V said that there is lately significantly more attention to the campaign in his boss's mind and that he will most likely be looking for ways to reach out to you pretty soon, understanding all the time sensitivity. I am more than sure that it will be resolved and we will get back to the original relationship with V's boss. The source close to Manafort confirmed that V is a reference to Victor, the Deripaska aide. So don't read this as some people kind of mistakenly did, and I can understand why, because the wording's a little weird. Like, Oleg Deripaska's boss is Vladimir Putin. I don't think that's what's being shown there. I think what's being shown there is exactly what the reporting says, that there's a guy named Victor. A lot of people have Vs in their names in Russia. It's just a very common letter for your first name to start with. Um, And Victor is Oleg Deripaska's aide, not Oleg Deripaska works for Vladimir Putin. That's not what they're talking about there. They're talking about Victor Deripaska's aide. This story has continued to get fleshed out in the public eye as late as this year. This is from January 8th of 2019 in The Guardian. Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, shared polling data on the 2016 election with a Russian man linked to Moscow's intelligence agencies, according to special counsel Robert Mueller. Manafort, 69, is accused of covering up other meetings and contacts with the Russian and elusive consultant named Konstantin Kalimnik, who worked for Manafort on election campaigns for pro-Kremlin politicians in Eastern Europe. Attorneys for Manafort disclosed the allegations in a court filing in Washington on Tuesday. They appeared in sections of the filing that were meant to be redacted, but where text underneath the blacked outlines could be copied and viewed. So a spokesperson for Manafort's team did not respond to a message asking if the faulty redactions were accidental. The document was later refiled to the court with the effective redactions. Mueller, who is investigating Russia's interference in the 2016 election and any coordination with the Trump team, has said in a court filing last year that the FBI assesses that Kalimnik, quote, has ties to a Russian intelligence service and had such ties in 2016. So again, Manafort talking to Kalimnik, who has ties to the Russian intelligence service and had such ties in 2016 presumably while Paul Manafort is the campaign manager here. I don't understand how that doesn't even fit into William Barr's definition of collusion. This seems pretty collusion-y to me, and at bare minimum, I would like an explanation, and I'm willing even to take it from the public at this point, as to how this isn't pretty damn collusion-y, or how this is normal. Like, what what would be the normal way to describe this in a non-collusion manner? That this is just Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik and Oleg Deripaska being pretty swamp monstery? And then, why then would 
Konstantin Kalimnik and Paul Manafort think that sharing campaign information would be of interest to private businessman Oleg Deripaska. It seems to me that a private Russian businessman has limited interests in the going-ons of the United States federal government. However, someone who is informally working on behalf of the interests of the Russian government, not a businessman who owns a magnesium company, but that same businessman in a different role, they would be interested in campaign information. But why would Oleg Deripaska think that that would make things even between him and Paul Manafort how are they calibrating that? How was he cautiously optimistic about these goings-on? There are documents to this. We can know these things. These are knowable things. I'm asking questions, but these are questions that largely have very knowable answers that we just haven't gotten yet. Because the scope of Mueller's investigation was limited to collusion during the course of the 2016 election, it didn't look at things like Eric Prince and his meeting in the Seychelles facilitated by George Nader that was done to coordinate United States government activity and Russian government activity, including, this is from the Daily Beast article on the time, what Eric Prince and Moscow's money man discussed in that infamous Seychelles meeting, quote, the idea, according to the memo, a memo was made, was to set up a joint special forces mission where together the U.S. and Russia take out a key ISIS person or place and then announces it afterwards. Eric, let me ask you this. You're a big supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, you've been questioned by special counsel Robert Mueller over the Russiagate investigation. He's looked at your laptop and your phones, I believe. You've also testified to Congress. In November 2017, you told Congress under oath that you played, quote, no official or really unofficial role in the Trump campaign. What you didn't tell Congress is that on August 3rd, 2016, uh, you were at a meeting during the campaign at Trump Tower with Don Jr., Trump's son, with Stephen Miller, then a campaign advisor to Trump, with George Nader, a former Blackwater colleague of yours who acts as a back channel to the Saudis, the Emiratis. He also happens to be a convicted pedophile. And also Joel Zamel, an Israeli expert on social media manipulation. How come you didn't mention that meeting to Congress, given it's so relevant to their investigation? Uh, I did. As part of the part of the investigations, I certainly uh, disclosed any uh, any meetings. The very very not few the, I had. Not in the congressional testimony you gave to the House. We went through it. You didn't mention anything about August 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. I they did. specifically asked you what context you have, and you didn't answer that. Uh, I don't believe I was asked that question. You were asked were there any communic formal communications or contact with the campaign. You said apart from writing papers, putting up yard signs. No, that's what you said. I've got the transcript of the conversation here. Sure. I mean, I might have been, uh, I, I think I was at Trump headquarters or the campaign headquarters. Trump maybe, Town, uh, August 3rd, 2016. You, possible. an Israeli dude, a back channel to the Emiratis and the Saudis, Don Jr., Stephen Miller. To, we're there to talk about Iran policy. Are you there to talk about Iran policy? Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's something important to disclose to the House Intelligence Committee while you're under oath? I did. You didn't. We just went through the testimony. There's no mention <laughs> of the Trump Tower meeting in August 2016. Why not? I don't know if they got the transcript wrong. Oh, they got the transcript wrong. So if we go, I, I, I don't know. I remember. I remember uh, certainly. Discussing I mean, this is a problem for you because we know that Robert Mueller. He hasn't been able to establish collusion yet, but he has got a lot of guys for lying to the authorities and not telling the whole truth. Is that a problem now? That even if you accidentally didn't tell them, that could come back and haunt you. 
I fully cooperated. And I haven't heard anybody. I haven't heard from anybody in more than nine months. I mean, I, I mean, members of Congress, after they discover this meeting, have talked about certain witnesses not telling the truth. But you believe you told Congress about this meeting, even though it's not in the transcript. Just to be clear, I, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, you had another meeting which they did talk to you about in the Seychelles on 11th January 2017, a week before Trump's inauguration, where good old George Nader was there again on behalf of the Emiratis, as was top Russian oligarch Kirill Dmitriev, a close ally of Vladimir Putin's. The Emiratis saw that meeting as a, as a way of creating a back channel between Putin's guy, Dmitriev, and Trump's guy, you, didn't they? I don't think so. I was there to talk to the uh, Emiratis about uh, Somalia and some of the other problem areas that... Uh, we'd uh, helped with before. Was it also about Iran? No. And it was, so how did you end up with a, with a Russian oligarch who runs the Russian direct investment fund and is seen by the Emiratis as the messenger to Putin, they call him? Well, I, as I recall, the Emiratis were investors in that fund, and uh, any, fund manager, fund, any fund manager tends to travel to where their LP, their investors, uh, need them to be. But what were you chatting about with the Russian dude? Uh, I talked about it in testimony, and that's all I'm going to say. But it was just a kind of accidental meeting? Yes. Even though George and Ada, your former like colleague... Said, like, like I've said before, it lasted one beer, which doesn't take me very long. <laughs> so you flew halfway around the world to a secret meeting in the Seychelles to have one beer with no, Vladimir Putin's no, no, messenger. No. I was there to see the Emirati leadership. That's not what George Nader seems to be telling the Mullah folks right now. Does that worry you, that Nader's contradicting That's, your testimony, uh, I, your former colleague? I, I, I think it's uh, amazing for you to try to view into the Mueller testimony. That's, uh, that's mighty prescient. I mean, okay. That's, that's, what, that's what's being reported. Okay. And all I'm going to say about that guy is he seems to have a pretty open mind about what he's willing to do on behalf of political agendas that he thinks are just or even are just paying pretty well. Another thing left out of Barr's analysis is what about all of these smaller indictments and all of the ancillary research around those smaller indictments. So, for example, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page were introduced to us in 2016 as Donald Trump's campaign advisors on foreign policy. Even perhaps we heard you might be announcing your foreign policy advisory team soon, if there's anything we you can share on that. We are going to be doing that, in fact... Uh very soon, I'd say during the week, we'll be announcing some, some names. It'll always grow. Any that you can start off with this morning with us? Well, you know, I hadn't thought in terms of doing it. If you want, I could give you some of the names. I, I wouldn't be delighted. I wouldn't mind. Um, Cody, do you have that list? I'll be a little more accurate with it. Okay, you ready? Take <laughs> <laughs> Waleed Ferris, who you probably know. PhD advisor to the House of Representatives Caucus and uh, he's a counterterrorism expert. Uh, Carter Page, PhD. Uh, George Papadopoulos, uh, he's an oil and energy consultant, excellent guy. And we were like, what the hell do these two guys know about foreign policy? Papadopoulos had no discernible experience, and Carter Page's experience was being someone who briefly owned part of a Russian oil company at one point. You are at the center of the news today, uh, USA Today, saying that uh, you and an uh, individual named J.D. Gordon, another advisor, met with uh, Sergei Kislak at the RNC in Cleveland. Is that true? 
Well, you know, Chris, it's interesting because that one of those pieces from the Washington Post that you showed, uh, it starts out with a discussion of a meeting that I participated in with Prime Minister Modi. But you did, in fact, meet with Sergei Kislyak there. I, I'm not talking about any meetings that I had there because I, I learned confidentiality rules when I served in the U.S. Navy, and I'm sticking with the commitment that I made to the uh, organizers that I would be, you know, okay. keep it an off-the-record meeting, so I'm not going to talk about okay, but here's, individual here's, discussions or people I may or may not have met with. No meetings related to those issues which were, which were being brought out. But I'm just asking you straight up, like, just for a straight answer, you're saying I can't confirm or deny. USA Today's reported it. You told one reporter I had no meetings with the Russians. Now you're telling me I had no meetings with the Russians about the things they were talking about. I'm just trying to get a straight answer. Like, did you meet Sergey Kislyak in Cleveland? Did you talk to him? I, I'm not going to deny that I talked with him. Although so you did I talk to say, him. I will say that I never met him anywhere uh, outside of Cleveland. Let's let's just so say that much. The only time that you met him was in Cleveland. I, 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 what, that I may have met him possibly would it might have been in Cleveland. So all I'm saying to William Barr is, how can you just ignore my boy Carter Page Barr? He's a student. He's a scholar. He's a pro se litigant. They're doing my boy dirty. But really, on a more serious note here, there was a FISA warrant taken out and renewed on Carter Page four different times in the investigation on Carter Page and his involvement with Russians goes way before the idea of Donald Trump ever running for president. So we have this ongoing investigation that involves Russians intersecting with the Trump campaign. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Was that a total accident? We don't have an answer on that still. Another thing, it doesn't look like Mueller did any real investigating into, and certainly Barr is not considering when he's looking at the obstruction piece of this, are the questions surrounding Trump's real estate relationships with Russians over the last decade. It appears Mueller didn't investigate, perhaps due to scope, this at all, which would be important context when it comes for us understanding Trump's state of mind in regards to collusion, like did he have to collude because so much of his finances were entangled with the Russians, and the obstruction side, like was that financial entanglement a thing that Donald Trump did not want becoming public? And and one thing we know, and I discussed it earlier in this episode, is yes, we know he didn't want that to be public because he is told untruths about that multiple times. Statements he knows to not be true. And, And the question is, was Trump compromised because, as one of the Koopa kids put it, we see a disproportionate amount of money coming in from Russia on these golf courses? I guess Russians just really love golf, yuck. Um, Or were the Trump organization becoming dependent on those financial ties in an existential way? Because that would be compromising for Trump and his family on a couple of different prongs. One, you wouldn't want that coming out. Two, if that financial tie dried up, then your family is out to dry here. Now, on the obstruction side, if this was indeed the case, this would potentially be a likely criminal thing that Donald Trump and his family would not want revealed during this investigation. Remember, Donald Trump might obstruct on behalf of Ivanka. He might obstruct on behalf of Jared. He might even obstruct on behalf of his namesake, Don Jr., maybe. So, insofar as the bar memo gave us answers, they're not flattering for Trump. And for the skeptical and or performatively bored left's version of events. 
There are Russians who are aiding his campaign indirectly. Russians were reaching out to offer direct assistance as well. According to Barr's version of events, the Trump campaign was not connecting back. I've obviously disputed that for the last hour and 15 minutes. I think that's demonstrable, but we're sticking to Barr's version of events. And even in Barr's version of events, it's not particularly flattering to the Trump campaign and certainly doesn't serve the whole Russia is a hoax narrative. No, Russia clearly has a governmental purpose in doing all this stuff. How effective it is? That's a subject for debate. But quit telling me Russia is a hoax. Barr agrees with Mueller and the intelligence community that WikiLeaks, who Trump talked about countless times at the tail end of the campaign, remember? This just came out. This just came out. WikiLeaks. I love WikiLeaks. And I said, write a couple of them down. Let's see. During a speech, crooked Hillary Clinton. Oh, she's crooked, folks. She's crooked as a $3 bill. Okay, here's one. Just came out. Lock her up is right. No. So everybody saw the debate last night. So let me tell you. When I said... We are going to get a special prosecutor to figure this deal out. I have never been so ashamed of this country as what's gone on with Hillary Clinton. I have never seen anything like it. 33,000 emails, 33,000. She deletes them, she bleaches them that nobody does because it's such an expensive process. She gets a subpoena from the United States Congress and after she gets the subpoena, she does that. But we'll talk about that in a minute. We have to go back to WikiLeaks. Oh, WikiLeaks. So, a speech made behind closed doors Crooked Hillary Clinton said that terrorism was not a threat, quote, not a threat to the nation. No, let me tell you, big, big, big threat. Terrorism was not a threat. Let me tell you, terrorism's a big threat. We're riding into something that's very dangerous, and she's allowing thousands and thousands of people to come into this country And I will tell you something, it's the great Trojan horse. And we don't want to be part of the era where we have the great, where they're talking about us in 200 years from now, okay? Then over here, let's see. Clinton bragged about her great relationship with the financial industry. That's where she gets all the money. In Florida, they say she's going to put ads on 50 to 1. And I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win. Hillary admitted, oh, this is a beauty, during one of these secret speeches, amazing how nothing's secret today when you talk about the internet, nothing. (laughs) Hillary admitted that ISIS could infiltrate with the refugees. Great. 
then why is she letting so many people into our country? Uh. She said, Wall Street can police itself. All right, that's who cares. Big Bang, Clinton said, needed Wall Street money in order to successfully, she needs, says here, quote, needs Wall Street money in order to successfully run her campaigns. Okay. So Blumenthal writes a quote. This just came out a little while ago. I have to tell you this. One important point has been universally acknowledged by the nine previous reports about Benghazi. This is Sidney Blumenthal, the only one she was talking to. She wasn't talking to Ambassador Stevens, even the 600 calls, probably desperation. The attack was almost certainly preventable, Benghazi. Clinton was in charge of the State Department and it failed to protect the United States personnel at an American consulate in Libya. He meant Benghazi. If the GOP wants to raise that as a talking point against her, it is legitimate. In other words, he's now admitting that they could have done something about Benghazi. This just came out a little while ago. What a group we have. What a group. What a group we have. I love WikiLeaks was a tool of the Russian government to release the emails that they hacked from the DNC with the deliberate intent of hurting Hillary Clinton's chances in the 2016 election. This also means that, one more time, all those cool alt journalists who poured through the Clinton emails in the 2016 campaign looking for scoops were the classic definition of useful idiots. Unwittingly serving the needs of the Russian government while serving their own. In a less flattering version of events to their character, they were witting and they weren't idiots. They were willing tools. They were instruments. They were apparatchiks. Further, this investigation and Barr's memo has illustrated that the Russians have had a multi-pronged opinion-influencing campaign going for many years. In addition to the troll farms and the bot networks and hacking into the DNC, which is a more discreet and acute event, the Russians have things like Sputnik and RT America, which create English language content. The journalists, I'm putting that in quotes, who have, or especially now, continue to take paychecks from these outlets need to be looked at with extreme skepticism. Even more skepticism than you should be looked at if you're quote-unquote a liberal or a lefty and you're going on Tucker Carlson's show or you're defending Tucker Carlson after what we know about that guy. You can disagree with how that stuff came out, but again, you're defending WikiLeaks. I don't think you get to disagree with how that stuff came out too much, but you can't deny the tapes either, right? It's kind of like WikiLeaks. They should know better. Those journalists, those so-called journalists, those commentators, they should know better. Also, this investigation has revealed to us that Donald Trump 
engaged in a hush money payment scheme using campaign funds in October while he was talking about WikiLeaks in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania on October 10th. All throughout that month, Donald Trump was engaging in a hush money payment scheme utilizing Michael Cohen and campaign funds and shell companies to prevent the disclosure of Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal and perhaps others as well getting out into the public discourse, which would have changed the discussion in October of 2016, and in my opinion, considering that Donald Trump lost the popular vote, I think he would have also lost the Electoral College if this information had come out. And I've long argued on this show that... James Comey gets too much blame for affecting the outcome of October 2016 going into the November Election Day cycle. And Michael Cohen does not get enough credit for what he did and how it altered the public discourse. The fact that we never had Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal to talk about, that probably altered the course of the election. Even far more than what the Russians were doing throughout the campaign because there's always an acute nature to you know what they call the October surprise that can really move an election cycle in those final days when people are thinking about things in a more top of mind context because they're going to vote in the next two to three weeks And it's worth remembering that if Donald Trump was not the president right now, he almost certainly would have been indicted along with Michael Cohen because he is the person who directed Michael Cohen to do the illegal activity. And if you hire somebody to do illegal activity on your behalf, you are also a criminal. So the only reason why Donald Trump isn't indicted already is because he's the president of the United States. This is also a thing that William Barr didn't consider when he was considering the obstruction part of this. That this is a pretty damaging revelation that came out during the course of the investigation. It strikes me as highly curious that William Barr wouldn't have considered this. And I think Robert Mueller probably wanted somebody to. That brings me to my last point here about Jim Comey. So I saw Jim Comey before I wrote this episode. He was posting on Twitter pictures of him out in the woods and he's like so many questions and if you listen to my book review of james comey's book a higher loyalty you know how i feel about james comey on balance i like the guy i still have strong disagreements with him when it comes to the fourth amendment and a lot of that centers around wikileaks issues from back in the day and i get that they're a bad organization now but there needed to be a meaningful way to challenge the patriot act and we didn't have one and that was an imperfect vehicle but man sometimes you just got to take the ride into town and not ask too many questions on the driver and i see the problems with that approach now but i also don't really regret it because i don't know what the vehicle to actually question bulk surveillance was ever going to be if not that so so I'm not too sorry, and we still don't quite agree on that front. But I think he brought a lot of positive changes to the FBI as an organization on balance, particularly with regard to beginning the process of diversifying the FBI's workforce. That's a really important project, and James Comey deserves a lot of applause for being forward-looking on that. I think he got unfairly maligned as the nexus of all evil, Jim Comey, by politicians and TV news in a way that served Fox and CNN at one point and MSNBC and CNN at a different point. 
And in both cases, James Comey was just caught in the crossfire hurricane, the name of that project, if you recur, of the way our three-pronged media is currently approached right now between MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. A lot of things die in the darkness of those three shadows. And I'm going to kick it back to something that I got a little bit of flack for, but I'm feeling pretty good about right now, if I might say so myself. I think he was right to share his thinking about the decision to not prosecute Hillary Clinton. Why? Because as he said at the time, we needed clarity on that matter as a nation in order to put it to some measure of rest. Yes, there are always going to be loons who think that something seriously went wrong in that email investigation, but they will be small. The problem we have right now in not knowing about some of these decisions to not prosecute on a matter of this substantial importance to national affairs is that a lot of people, a lot more people than who still think that Hillary Clinton's emails are a verdant and real subject of investigation, a lot of people are questioning what just got done here in this bar memo. So I think the wisdom of Comey's logic should actually be fairly manifest now, especially today. So I saw Comey, and he tweets out so many questions. And my reaction after having all of these various feelings about James Comey is, dude, you have the power to answer some of these questions. A lot of people like James Comey have answers to the remaining questions. And there are a lot of remaining questions. I posed some of them, but frankly, there's probably even more than I posed right here. But those people have chosen over the course of the last two years to wait on Mueller. Well, Mueller has come. Mueller has done his part. And you know what? I fucking respect Mueller. I think he did a really good job here because we know a lot more about what happened than we did before he did this investigation. I even admire, although I recognize some of the problems with this strategy too, the doggedness with which he didn't leak from this. And you can see how the Trump administration is taking advantage of that strategy, which is the one problem with that strategy. But Robert Mueller did a good job. He really did. But it's time for us to stop waiting on Robert Mueller. He needs to go and do whatever Bob Mueller does to unwind. I know that he likes computers a lot, so maybe I'll run into him in just a bit when I sit down and play some Halo. That's going to do it for this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. You can find me on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. Our homepage is don'tworry.tv. Go there. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. I think we're up on Spotify. I'm going to double check that here in just a bit. But go and check us out at all of those various locations if you could, if you would. And leave us a review. Thank you guys so much for supporting this show. Just a quick reminder, as I've mentioned a few times throughout this commentary, don't worry about the government is listener-supported. That means you. And a buck a show is all I'm asking. I'm not asking. Some of you have chosen to give more per episode, and I appreciate that greatly, but I want to make it abundantly clear that full service is available for all who give a buck a show. 
Um, and, and that's how we grow this thing out, one listener at a time and one supporter at a time. So I hope you'll consider going to patreon.com slash DWATG, or your other option is to go and check out the PayPal links over at don'tworry.tv. You can do a one-time payment. It says recurring. It's not recurring. It's just one time. I don't really know how to get back in and edit the HTML code, and I don't want to do it all again. So if you're good at helping me build websites and, and you're someone who wants to redesign don'tworry.tv at some point, not in a major hurry, but that position is available for those of you looking to do some sort of internship type thing, hit me up at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. I want to thank you guys so much for listening, and until the next one, bye-bye. do such great journalism is I don't, I don't, I'm not afraid of any of these people because I don't even know who they are. To me, they're just like, I don't know how even how to say their names.